Hello and welcome to the Bad Music Hurts Podcast, the show where my siblings and I chat about our favorite records. This is episode 11, and we're closing out our discussion on Kamasi Washington's 2015 three-disc behemoth, The Epic. With me today, as always, is my brother, Michael. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Hey, we we made it. <laughs> this is the home stretch. <laughs> it's been an arduous journey, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. Uh, at, at running time of two hours, 53 minutes, we're on the last disc, finally. So, um, looking forward to it, though. Looking forward to uh, talking about it. Glad we're here. And... Mm-hmm. And yeah, and this yeah. time it wasn't a month. <laughs> I think this is the first time I'm ever going to say, yes, I am looking forward to disc three. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's time for my scheduled uh, track order breakdown in the differences between the vinyl release and the digital slash canonical release. And uh, I have to say that the first song on disc three is The Magnificent Seven, which is very odd. <laughs> it's very odd, but my my sparse notes on it after re-listening to Disc 3 on the vinyl, uh, I also listened to Disc 3 in uh, the digital release, but my, my notes are, well, it certainly makes the vinyl's Disc 3 suck less, which um, I was not in a great mood when I wrote that. I don't think that's necessarily fair, but that certainly gives you a, a good idea of where my mental state is usually when I get to Disc 3. Yeah, so, um, yeah. It's it's hard. I mean, disc three has a hard setup for it in terms of if you do listen to this album as a whole, that it's hard to avoid kind of an inevitable uh, kind of fatigue with listening to this to this album just because it is so long. But that being said, I will kind of stand as an opening statement that I think disc three, as in terms of the quality of material on here, is probably the least interesting. Or I guess the one that I would be least gravitated towards just playing on its own um, in its current digital format. So the digital uh, track list. Um, I would definitely agree with that. But I I think you made a very salient point last episode about the pacing, about disc three is the falling action. Like the climax is Henrietta, like in our opinions, Henrietta, our hero in disc two and everything after that, particularly disc three, is the falling action. Mm-hmm. And that that did reframe my listening, particularly when I came in for the digital re-listening of disc three. And um, I, I don't think that necessarily changes my ordering of favorite discs to least favorite discs. I think I'd probably still put disc three uh, at the bottom, unfortunately, but it ha- it did make me gain a new appreciation for some of the cuts on here, which uh, I think we can uh, get into now uh, if you don't have anything else uh, to say in your opening statement. No, no, yeah, we can jump right into it. I mean, we can discuss and argue track order then after we go through the tracks. Oh, I'm excited about that. So, you got uh, listeners, you got that to look forward to. What our uh, own track orders would be. We hinted at this uh, in the previous episode, and we're doing it. We got our orders, uh, but that's going to be at the end of the episode. So, the first track, Rerun Home, it is a bona fide reprise. Oh, yes. It's so much fun. I wrote in big, bold letters, groovy. <laughs> it is mm-hmm. so groovy. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, what I've noticed is that they uh, this Thundercat actually makes a pretty decent appearance in this and brings the pretty much the bass funk to this song. And they pretty much take rerun and flip it, like you're saying, to groove, where we don't have the choir and the grandness of rerun, but we have the piano, the groove of Thundercat kind of driving us through the song. And it's kind of fun because it's the same kind of melodies and same experimentation on that, but kind of through a different tone and a different approach. Are you serious? Thundercat plays on this i had no idea <laughs> yeah so at least um from what i've been able to see at least on uh if you google these songs on uh genius.com the site that has the lyrics they uh they list kind of the who's who on the track i i don't know how much to credit the accuracy of that but at least from that source they cite that thundercats um on the base for uh rerun home oh that makes me like it even more then holy moly that's i i would have to check i i have in the uh vinyl release they have a beautiful breakdown of every single artist performing on a given track even the choir they'll break down each individual person on the choir uh which is really cool i i just must have missed it. Either that or he was a secret cameo. I, it's totally possible I just m- missed his name, which is very unfortunate for me to miss. But that's really great he was on here because that was one of my notes is that the bass is just really going in. Like th- it is such a mix up from the previous songs on this record thus far. Because as you mentioned, like we're used to the grandness, we're used to the choir, or we're used to like a lot of brass instruments. But the focus here is the percussion and the bass more than anything else. Particularly, I'd even say more the percussion, but definitely percussion and bass uh, as a duo are taking center stage here, which I don't think any previous song in the record thus far uh, can say the same. Like It is very interesting to have these instruments come up to the forefront where they haven't really in any previous song. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, uh, the focus of percussion, I think the only other song where that has a really strong presence is The Message, um, where that is uh, kind of a fury of of drums and the solos that they have there. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the reprise of the song, it's just it, it was a lot of fun listening to them both side by side, uh, because you kind of kind of get the focus turning back. I mean, you got Ryan Porter and Kamasi doing their kind of the same duet melody is kind of revisited and they kind of explore it a little bit differently but one one part of the song that really jumps out to me is in rerun home pretty much kamasi's soloist work builds to almost a soloist call and response ping pong on solo melodies between porter and uh, whoever's on trumpet it's igmar thomas igmar thomas yeah 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 and it's just kind of cool because it, it really is a ping pong where they kind of play take something that someone uh the other player did and kind of do a different twist down and throw it back to them. And it's this like call and response. It goes and goes and goes. And it's from like 425 to the 620 timestamp. And then they eventually kind of merge together and it's kind of, it's kind of almost chaotic because they kind of clash a little bit. But then towards the end of this, they eventually kind of get back in sync and then complement each other. It just was like a really fun kind of different exploration for this reprise to explore. Um, as opposed to, uh, like we we're discussing, the grandness of of rerun uh, with the choirs and everything like that. It is one of my favorite parts on the uh, track by far is their duet where they're uh, passing it back and forth between them, and then they slowly just start doing a bonafide duet together 
improvising, which is insane. That is insane. And they're there doing a duet improv together, like kind of taking turns going into the background or going into the foreground. And it's just so cool to hear these two going at it like that. I can't say I've heard anything similar to that recently. Not that I listen to a lot of jazz in my free time, but that is certainly a very difficult thing to do. And I would say pretty unusual, which was just very, very fun. And it brought something, as you said, fresh to the original reruns take on the core melody. So I really did like that. And one of the other things that stuck out to me was the, uh, the percussion again. So actually what was interesting for disc three to me, one of the things that stuck out was, uh, these two guys, Tony Austin and Ronald Burner, they are the right and left drums respectively. Um, and they only appear from what I gather or what could I could, uh, deduce on disc three. They're on rerun home, Malcolm's theme and the message. And those are the only songs I saw their names in the credits list. So, those guys in and of themselves give disc three a very groovy percussion vibe in a way that is just not present at all in the uh, previous two discs. So they, they do work on disc three. So I, even though I, I keep throwing shade towards disc three's direction, they are my favorite parts uh, by far on disc three. I think they bring a lot of fun and a fun new energy to disc three. It's just a shame. I think the songwriting isn't there to really give them the platform that I think they could have really shined in, but it was definitely still a treat to have them appear as many songs as they did. And they uh, do a great job here for sure. One of the things I have written down here as well as uh, you mentioned it, like I encourage listeners, if you listen to the whole thing while you're doing homework or cleaning the house or you know, even if you're uh, just uh, doing an active listen, it's hard to keep all of these unique songs in your head for the first few listens. It's hard to keep the distinctions between them in your head because there's just so many songs. So I would encourage if you're just joining in and starting to explore the album to uh, independently listen to Rerun and then Rerun Home uh, to really accentuate, oh yeah, this is a reprise of rerun and oh that is so cool to hear the differences between them because i know at least for me even as an active listener it still took a few listens for me to really notice and understand the differences between them and really appreciate those differences so um i would i would point that out to people diving into this record like keep an eye out for these two because it is fun to draw the differences between them uh what they do well and excel in individually Oh, yeah. And you can definitely get a sense of like the segments of each song when you listen to them back to back, like you're saying. And that's exactly what I did is I would kind of listen to the beginning of one, then listen to the beginning of the other, then kind of jump to like, okay, that's the end of kind of what I deemed or drew the line in the sand as the beginning and then jump to the middle. And it was kind of fun to look at those segments then of the songs and kind of listen to them back to back. The beginning's actually a pretty good example where the beginning has the choir for rerun, but at around 47 to a minute mark, you have the same kind of poor progression of Cameron Graves on the piano as Rerun Home, but Rerun Home jumps right into it. 
uh, for the first uh, around a minute to 50 seconds. And it's just kind of fun to hear that reflected and kind of bringing in the song in the similar way. And both then kind of jump in with Ryan Porter and Kamasi with that melody. And then they kind of take it different directions from there. I agree. It's one of those things where I'm like, looked at it. I initially made a comment that I thought rerun may, may have been a reprise of some other material on the record. But now I, I of course realize that rerun and rerun home are just two sides of the same coin then. So they pretty much almost ran it back and tried tried something different. I mean, I've talked about what my theory was about Rerun being a reprise sure, fact, yes. of the second track on Harmony of Difference, but we, you know, we'll let the listeners decide if there's similarities there or not. But yeah, no, actually that's it's so fun hearing I mean, I'm a fan of reprises. Everyone knows this. I love reprises. <laughs> it's my kryptonite. But um this is something that Kamasi definitely explores very deeply in that Harmony of Difference EP, because every song on Harmony of Difference, I mean, if the album name is any indication, it's all kind of different takes on the same core melody or the same core chords, and presenting them with a different take, a different twist, a different perspective, Harmony of Difference. All of these songs are different, yet they're all of the same at the same time and it's so fun to hear that so it's it's also fun to see either him dipping his toes into it for the first time here depending on which ones were written first or revisiting that again here on the epic uh depending on which ones were recorded first in that crazy month-long non-stop recording session in december mm-hmm so my my question to you is what's your opinion on how rerun versus rerun home ends so I very much kind of have an opinion, and I'm kind of just kind of curious before I talk about it, what your thoughts are on how the, the two songs end. Uh, this is one of my last notes. I was actually going to get to it. <laughs> um, I love the breakdown at the end. It is such a fun surprise. You think the song's over, and, all, and then you just have the bass coming in like the boom, boom, boom. I love when they have little little segments at the beginning of songs, end of songs, in the middle of songs that are really non-sequitur, like they're not really needed, but they're there. Not just Kamazi, but just artists in general. I love things like that. It keeps things fresh. It makes th- songs more fun to listen to, having all of this variety come in. I mean, you can have the most gorgeous piece, but if it's predictable it becomes quickly boring, or at least that's a thing that is very difficult to fight. It becomes an uphill battle then to not be boring, at least for me. So to have little things like this, I love those little hooks to kind of get into you that you're going to maybe be humming to yourself or remembering throughout the day. Like, oh yeah, I like that part. That part's cool. Mm -hmm. So I love it. Um, I'm curious, do you like it as well? So my opinion was, because like I was saying, I was listening to these back-to-back at their different segments, so kind of like beginning, middle, and end, kind of arbitrarily chosen based on kind of song duration and kind of what they were doing. But in my opinion, I don't know, I feel like Rerun Home kind of just ends on a whimper compared to Rerun. It's, I get a sense like listening to them back to back, it's almost like they just kind of like ran out of ideas in Rerun Home and it just kind of peters out. And it's sort of like the musical equivalent of a fade where they're just like, and anyone got anything else? No, uh, okay, and it's, okay, it's ending. <laughs> like, um, Where I feel like Rerun 
carries its lead up into a more satisfactory conclusion with the choirs and string section that close it out, where I just didn't get the same with Rerun Home. rerun home i just felt like they kind of like i said kind of ran out of <laughs> ran out of road to go i guess disagreeing so hard over here <laughs> <laughs> i love both endings for completely different reasons the song began super groovy it's gonna end super groovy it's like the uh, uh a big float came in in the beginning with these grooving uh musicians and then the car revs up again, and they're on the way out with the groove at the end. It's so fun. And usually I'm with you. I'm not a fan of fade outs, uh, at least in general, as a general rule. Um, I think they are kind of a cop out, as you said before. They can be done well, but in general, I find they're usually not as fun and usually not as memorable or uh, effective as like an actual bonafide ending to a song. But I think it makes sense here. Like, the song ended before the groove out. The groove out is just a little extra bonus for for those sticking around. So I I enjoy it. I can see why maybe you don't necessarily enjoy it as much, particularly if you're coming right off of rerun and you're expecting something just as payoffy at the end. But I I appreciate the end. <laughs> Oh, that's a good point. I mean, I guess it, I guess it is. Yeah, like you're saying, a good, a different take, and that it's more groove and more improvis. Uh, oh, okay, I try to say this word improvisational. <laughs> yes, that word. <laughs> um, as we could kind of see be- with the duet or the duality between um, Porter and Thomas, um, kind of doing the call and response. It's it seems to be more predicated on that. So, um, I will kind of stand by my opinion, though, that I kind of wish it. I got more of a, I guess, grand end to it because if I got the sense that it was building to that, and then they didn't, they didn't close it in my mind. They just kind of left it hanging. <sighs> well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree on this. <laughs> Listeners, let us know what is your favorite ending. Either it's rerun or rerun home. There is one correct answer, and the correct answer is they're both really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pacifist. <laughs> I'm just trying to delay before we go to Cherokee. <laughs> I I actually quite enjoyed looking more into this because it solidified me more in your camp of this is lackluster boring crap. <laughs> so some history here. Cherokee is not a piece written by Kamasi. It is actually the composition itself was uh, a piece by Ray Noble from 1938. It's also known as the Indian Love Song <laughs> and uh Man, it should have stayed in 1938, where it belongs. I, it's, it's, sort, it's something of like a meme among jazz musicians to cover this song. And it seems because one of the the key signature, or rather the chord progression, is supposedly very difficult to improv over. So it's kind of a way to flex your muscles a little bit. Like, oh yeah, I had an awesome solo over this historically very difficult place to improv over so it's kind of a way to show off a little bit show off your skills but man that a good song does not make cherokee is so bad 
had. I, I cut you off a little bit, Michael. You had, I think you had more to say, but I, I just wanted to provide a little bit of background that this isn't, the composition is not Kamasi's. This is a cover. Yes, but I will say that it's a terrible cover. I did some searching around and listened to some different renditions of the song. For example, there's a video on YouTube. It's the University of North Texas. And it's their one o'clock band. Is That's the name of their, uh, I guess, their jazz band. And it is a complete 180 of this sleeper of a song in the epic. The drummer is constantly keeping just an unbelievable tempo in this cover that University of North Texas does. And it has such a, I don't know if it's the mixing or mastering or the lack of lyrics, but it's such a a better big band energy to it that my one comment was like, hot damn, what, where did this come from? And I, I don't know how to describe it other than it just has a completely different energy to it. Um, and I also found another video on YouTube. It's uh, the Clifford uh, Bro Brow, I believe is how you pronounce it. And Max Roach, uh, they, there's a video on YouTube and they also have this high energy and almost like ferocity to the plane, something that's like, whoa, okay. Like it's a it's almost like a completely different song. But then you listen to the epics and it's things are slowed down to like school zone speed limits. And you have then these lyrics that just the lyrics slow down the song, I get a feeling, because if you listen to the other versions, you couldn't put a vocalist with that song. It like it physically wouldn't work because the band is running such a fast pace that it would just sound weird and just wouldn't work. So I almost get the sense that like these vocals were coupled to the song and it kind of necessitated things to be a completely different pace and drag down. And I don't even think the lyrics are anything that special where it warrants it. It's just I don't know, like, for example, University of North North Texas version, there's so many solos like the um like there's trumpet work if the listeners listen to this rendition at the six minute stamp where this guy for 50 seconds on the trumpet it's like insane like this guy just goes and goes and goes and just so fast how he's playing it's just it's insane and it's just i couldn't help but be sucked in and and this is with the preconceived notion of, okay, this is the song Mark hates, and <laughs> this is the one where I know it's kind of like an odd sleeper song. Let's see how other people do it. Impress me. I, prove me wrong, kind of one of those attitudes I was going into it with. And I pulled a 180. Like, I don't think this is a bad jazz standard by any means. I just think Kamasi did a really, really poor cover of it. Or perhaps Kamasi is a more truthful rendition and these other bands took it to a different direction, in my opinion, a more interesting direction. So that I don't have the history on is I, I, I couldn't find the quote quote original version. I mean, it was from 1938. Yeah. So like, <laughs> that's what's kind of weird is that it's, it's almost, it's almost like, kind of independent of the standard itself now it's bigger than that like you're saying it's the jazz memification it's the people do it because it's kind of the thing you do um so all i gotta say is i almost want to take a break and send you this link and just have you listen to a little bit of this 
because <laughs> I'm a little bit scared because it may just further reinforce your hatred for this cover. <laughs> but let me just yeah, send, I mean, let me it, just send you this. I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't listen to anything regarding this piece, like other covers or anything. I couldn't be bothered. Um, so that's on me. I, I, I have such a distaste for for this piece. So let me let me just let me just jump into this real quick. Okay, I've heard enough. I'm just going to close this. All right. So, uh, I did listen to a little bit of what you sent, and I also looked up. Cherokee is, yeah, a jazz standard, and it it has lyrics. So, either uh, it was lyrics were added way back in the day, and other musicians have also used those lyrics, including Kamasi, or lyrics were in the original official standard, and people have riffed on it without jazz singers, uh, like in the link that you sent me. And I I just, I don't like the composition that you can soup it up however you like, but the actual melody itself is just not pleasing to me. It is very cheesy and cheeky and like, oh, like, I, but, <laughs> I just... <laughs> This is where, to your point, that cover, nowhere near as bad as the one. <laughs> it's so bad. It's almost making fun of you. I, can't, I can't, don't know how to describe it. It's like, okay, kids, here's this song now. It, it, you're exactly right. The vocals definitely have that, like, that tone to them in terms of the delivery. <sighs> so trite. I can't, I can't deal with it. I don't know. My primary... My primary issue, I think, is with the lyrics. Um, I agree. The bass composition in terms of the Epic's version is boring and kind of a sleeper. Um, but I guess I realized I actually quite enjoyed it when it was stripped of the lyrics and vocals and done with a different energy and kind of take like the University of North, North Texas did. Um, and I got to say, there's something that is like they're trying to annoy me with the vocals of this <laughs> with the like... <laughs> The moaning and like grunting accompanying the instrumental blasts. It's just like, it's annoying. It's not needed in this song. Uh, Patrice uh, uh, does the best she can, Michael. Oh, this, it's she is not given good material. It's She's just, doing the best she can. I will stand by Patrice. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's, Hashtag stand with Patrice. <laughs> it's just, ah, I, I can't do it. It's it, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's one of those scenes where like listening to those sections, it 
takes me out of the song. It's like nails on a chalkboard. I can't do it. I don't mind a little bit of scat. Scat's fine. No, but the- no, no, no. It, it, it reminds me of like, uh, I got to find my note here on how it resonated with me. Please, please share with us. I think my my issue with the lyrics kind of boiled down to it reminded me of an American Idol audition. Oh, <laughs> where, no. <laughs> where it's, the vocalists are trying to make this sound important and trying to convey that I'm a great virtuoso singer, pitchy manner, and it's just, it, I can't do it. I can't do it. It doesn't feel genuine. It doesn't sound genuine. Way too much vocal modulation for what the instrument, for what the instrumentation has as a backing. It's just it. it, This song just does not work. She was just trying to bring life into a soulless song. Give her a break. (laughs) No, no. I'll I'll push against you because I feel like life can be breathed in when you rip out the goddamn vocals. And no, not not on that brass backing. Not a chance this song is not salvageable as it is it is a sinking ship okay and she okay. went down with it in a ball of flaming glory <laughs> okay well maybe this is for the listeners to determine in my opinion listening to the university of north texas version that has shown me and opened my eyes to the possibility of what this song could be coming and- in to spread the good word yes i've uh. seen the light like you're saying, I don't even particularly like the groove of it. It's very, like you're saying, boppy. Yeah, I, I don't know. So the University of North Texas version also showed that it can be a great facilitator for some awesome soloist and virtuoso work. And there are no great solos in this song. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's a barren wasteland of good solos. Oh, my gosh. There's there's nothing then going for it. It's yeah. Not that they're bad, it's just they're not noteworthy. I literally have no notes for any of the solos here. Like, the only, I know that solos exist in this piece on the epic, but I couldn't tell you even who to, who did it. Yeah, and I guess this gets back to kind of where I don't like the... I mean, we'll get into the song more, but that's kind of the part of the reason I pitched that I want a Claire de Lune in disc two. Mm-hmm. Because... Do you follow this with that? It just, it's like taking your momentum and shooting yourself in the foot. See, now maybe I disagree with you there because um, I very much like the next song, the third song in disc three, Claire de Lune. I love it so much. It is so nice. It really <laughs> is. It's it's a great song. I just, in my opinion, it's misplaced. But I agree. It's it, it, Claire de Lune is every, it's one that, that piano melody from, is it Claude de, uh, Debussy? Um, yeah, Claude, Claude Debussy. Debussy. <laughs> you know, an Italian Frenchman. Um, <laughs> but you're exactly right. It's, 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 so it's one of those piano melodies that like almost everyone has heard. Oh, yeah. They just don't know they've heard it. So it's familiar. It's whimsical. Oh, yeah. You get the swaying melodies from Kamasi and Ryan Porter. Oh, it's just, and the choir gets brought back in. It This is a fun song. I just really love it. Yeah, I love Cameron Graves on the piano for the intro and outro here. I, I feel like the curtain's being lifted up on a grand opera as it's about to begin. Like, boom, 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 boom. Oh, Gerald! Like, so, something crazy's <laughs> happening, dramatic on the stage. It's just, it pushes all my theatrical buttons. Um, and I very much appreciate how dramatic and... Um, eloquent the piano is.
it's it's such a breath of fresh air, as you said, following uh, Cherokee. When you were talking before, I was worried about like, oh God, is he going to say he doesn't like Claire Loon? And he's like, oh, it shoots it in the foot being next to Cherokee. Like, no, no. Okay. He likes it. Okay. Good. <laughs> I would have had to fight you with Claire de Loon, but I do agree. It belongs in volume two for sure. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's more about the flow, I guess is what I'm arguing with, with mm-hmm, that respect, mm-hmm. but it's okay. We'll fix it. Yeah. So as discussed in our second episode, I am not a fan of most bass solos, <laughs> and I think this is another <laughs> exemplary <laughs> example of why most bass solos are bad, In at least an example of what's done in this album, where you get at 5 minute 50, you get Cameron Graves doing this great piano solo work with the choir, it's just awesome, and then the solo work after the cello, it just, it's abrupt, it doesn't carry the energy, it doesn't feel like it fits in. I guess, I guess, let me back up. I guess this shouldn't be a broad statement on Basil. Uh, oh, sorry. Basil is Christ. <laughs> um, on bass solos. Um, I guess my issue with this one is more on placement, where it, they don't sell up, uh, set up the cello. So I think it's the cello, the cello solo for success, putting it right after Cameron Graves at that timestamp. It just, it doesn't work. It feels abrupt. It feels like you hit the brakes. I don't know. It, it doesn't carry it well. That's the only criticism I have of Claire de Lune. It's terrible. I, I hate that bass solo, that cello bass. Um, and I think it's the same guy that did that terrible uh, bass solo from uh, Disc 2 that I talked about. Like, it, he, he, I, I, it, I don't hate him. I just hate his instrument of choice. That's all. It's just a terrible <laughs> instrument. I maybe okay. I am joking. I have heard a cello played very, very well, um, and even improv well. I just don't like this guy's style. I think um, I, I just I, maybe it just doesn't fit into this group and the the tone that ev- every other musician is maintaining. It's just I, I feel like. Every time this guy and his cello comes in, is and then he's here. <laughs> it's the cello show for the next three minutes, and then it goes back to being an actual song. Yeah, it's like, wah, wah. It's like oh, no. God. It's like, yeah, but on a frog. Oh, God. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Not a great solo, not a great instrument, not a great anything. It's just, let's, let's talk again about the keyed instruments. The keyed instruments shine here. Cameron yes. and Brandon just do such a great job, both mm-hmm. of them, mm-hmm. on this piece. It is, this is a glowing stage for the keyboardists, the piano guy and electric keyboard to come up and strut their stuff. And it, they do a beautiful job. This song is, it's such a staple for the piano. It's, it's so compatible with it. Just like kind of the, the tone and I don't know, just the melody too. It just, it just carries you away. It's like something that you could fall, like fall asleep to, not in a bad way, but in, no, in yeah. a like reminiscent, um, kind of, it, it, it has conveys kind of a sense of like, content on nostalgia almost like i mean take for example i think this accompanies the one the finals one of the final scenes from oceans 11 i believe when they finally pull off the heist and they're all sitting in las vegas at the um i forget what casino they're outside of but the one with the big fountain and i believe it's this claire de lune uh, Debussy. Debussy. Yeah, Debussy. Uh, God, we're butchering it. But um, <laughs> it's that piano accompaniment 
during that scene and it's quiet it's just the piano and the visuals of the movie and i think that's a good like that's an example of kind of they're all kind of staring in the fountain and the the scene kind of progresses where each character kind of gradually peels off it reminds me of that i mean it's, it's very much that kind of content um nostalgia that you can kind of look back at it's like oh yeah we like we pulled it off or like it's kind of relief and you just kind of feel like weights lifted off your shoulder with that kind of melody <laughs> He did a great job covering this. It's so odd to see such an amazing cover following such a terrible cover. (laughs) So he can do covers. He can do a very good job at covers. Yes. Yes, he can. No, yeah, this this one is it's it's up there as one of my favorite, I guess, lower key ones, not in terms of the musical key, but in terms of energy. And I love how they revisit that melody at the end where it's the piano like closing it out too it's just oh it's just very potent how they, they yep. even close it out it, it you know circles back around to the piano again it wraps it up in a nice little bow and sends it on its way it's, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful piece and you're right about it being very melodic it has like beautiful crescendo in the very middle as well so like the whole song feels very uh uh, cyclical like circular it, it, like it sort of feeds back into itself you can almost put the thing on repeat Shall we uh, talk about Malcolm's theme next? Okay, I think we shall. I, I do have a few things to talk about before I guess we dive into our thoughts on Malcolm's theme. So um, this is probably the oddest song on the record. Yes. Uh, it is a composition by uh, Terrence Blanchard, and uh, the lyrics are literally excerpts from Malcolm X's eulogy as uh, delivered by Ossie Davis. And they even have a clip of Malcolm X giving his, I believe it's like among his last words in his uh, biography, and I think it's like his last public speech. And yeah, these are live recordings. Yeah, it is literally him. And uh, it was hours after his house was bombed and only a week before his assassination. So it's uh, some heavy subject material here for sure. And the song itself is very odd because of all of these other playing factors here. It's actually written by Terrence Blanchard for the band, so it wasn't like, it's an original composition, but it wasn't by Kamasi. So it's not a cover, it's not a Kamasi piece, and also it's got all of this historical stuff uh, behind it as well, so it's very odd. Um, there's no other song like it here. No, 
like you're saying, I, I think it's coupled to that. It's, it's like a tribute because it is based off. The, I mean, I had no idea it was based off the eulogy. Yeah. So the song, I mean, it has great historical value. It is, is as you said, like it really, it is a tribute for sure. And it, it does so with grace and it's very dignified and it's got a profoundness to it because of that. It has a great Kamasi solo in it. And I just, I just, I don't know if everything comes together for me on this. It's kind of a snooze fest. And I feel really bad saying that because I think the message and the song itself is very important. I just, I don't think it saves what is to me at the core, a pretty boring piece. Uh, And I kind of feel bad about that. Like, and it's okay if it's, maybe it's just not made for me and that's fine. But I'm looking at it. I'm just like, compositionally, I just don't think the melody here is that, engaging and sure the lyrics are important at the being malcolm's eulogy but i'm just i just i don't i I, for me it's just it does nothing for me i just have oh i almost have nothing to say about it. it's not like i think it's bad it's just i i have nothing to say about it yeah so i guess my i get what you're saying that like there are parts in this song that i really like instrumentally and i think that the song and instrumentals again the pitfall of cherokee kind of falls onto this song as well, where I feel like things slow down for the lyrics, where it doesn't feel like the lyrics naturally flow into instrumentals. Um, and all the instrumentals during the lyrics are fairly disinteresting. And the lyrics just kind of have a, a madness to them in terms of the delivery, right? Independent of the actual words. I don't know. It just does. It didn't seem to work for me. I, it may be because that this isn't necessarily their bread and butter, where it's more, they're obviously they're more predicated on instrumentals in this record. I mean, you listen to any other song, the vocals almost are like a natural company instrument, but I always get the feeling that things seem to just slow down then for the lyrics and vocals in this. It's not just the vocalists themselves. I think it is in part because of the lyrics. I think it's uh, kind of a double-edged sword here using the lyrics from the uh, writings from the eulogy because that's not really necessarily conducive to being a good piece for songs like i almost got the sense you know in church when the priest would sometimes oh, be like and now i'll yes. sing the lord's prayer and you're like why are you singing this i was trying to describe what i meant by slow and i think you're you're hidden on it yeah yeah you're taking lyrics that really are not intended or good fits for being sung they're just not melodic and kind of trying to make it work anyway and that can be very good that can be really nice in fact uh battery kenzie flea foxes helplessness blues the lyrics there are really not conducive to like a melodic song i woke up one morning all my fingers rotting i woke up a dying man without a chance like that's that's (laughs) (laughs) only one person can really deliver lyrics like that and it is it is flea foxes um so it can be done and when it's done well it's very effective but i just i don't think it it lands here and and it's a tough job to do and i think they really wanted to have it be the lyrics from the eulogy but i I, yeah I, i think it does necessarily impact the pace as you were saying and not in necessarily a good way that being said though you can sense the I guess the love and the honor and tribute in this song, because the parts that I really like are, for example, Kamasi's tenor sax work starting at the two minute mark around 222. Like, again, that's like one, a good example of one of his like 
best solo works is in this. And I think it gets, you get a sense of Kamasi's energy and like tribute to how Malcolm uh, helped him in his life. Um, I mean, in, I forget which website it was from the interview I got it from. Last time I felt bad because I didn't cite the website that I got the interview from. So let me just get this right really quick here. I think that's maybe why I'm being, I don't want to say soft, but I, I feel like I have an appreciation for this, whereas I don't have an appreciation for Cherokee. In fact, I despise Cherokee and everything it stands for. And I think it is that Cherokee is soulless, but Malcolm's theme, it has a soul. It cares. And and even though I don't think the song itself really lands like I, I, I would personally want it to, um, first of all, that's fine. Not everything's made for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, I can respect that, like, man, they care. Like, they, there's some soul here. There's some, like, heart here that is just not there in Cherokee, in my yes. opinion. So, um, I, I think that goes a long way to me kind of overlooking some of the shortcomings there. And that's not just for Kamasi Washington and the Epic. That's If there's artists, there, there's actually plenty of albums out there where maybe I'm not entirely into this song or this piece or this part in the song, but the emotional gravitas behind it and the emotional impact informing that makes it go down makes it smooth in fact going back to fleet foxes like the uh saxophone breakdown and the shrine and argument like that's not pleasing to listen to that's not good songwriting but at the same time it kind of is because it delivers the emotional impact and i i actually kind of look forward to that part now so it's all it's not a black and white scale on oh this is good songwriting therefore it's bad or oh this is bad songwriting so this is um you know, it, 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 it's a little bit deeper than that. There's a lot of gray and one really good hammered home point can kind of bring along the other, you know? Yeah, it's like you're saying, it's kind of like the meta appreciation of something, right? I think just because it's kind of hard for me to relate to a lot of the material in the song as well, where like I get a sense of the appreciation and the honor and the tribute, but for me, it doesn't personally resonate because this is... Something that, at least in American history, we usually stopped at World War II. We never really got much to the civil rights movement. And this is credit to the uh, private Catholic education system. Like, you don't learn about this in in high school, usually, or at least we didn't in our uh, uh, history books. But we learned about him in religion class, for sure. Like, I think we talked about him in three individual times throughout my uh, different like grade levels like we, we've definitely covered Malcolm X so um yeah no like we you're right we usually stop at the like um uh, second world war but a religion class would almost always cover civil rights movements and uh recent events for like human-centric uh concerns like active today in the world and things of that nature so like you know credit to uh religion class because I, I learned about him there <laughs> yeah I guess I I guess I didn't pay attention <laughs> or i mean granted we probably talked about him more times than the times i said uh and also wasn't paying attention but i i tried to pay attention during religion class yeah i was not a very attentive and good student in high school but anyway i, I guess getting back to kind of the meta appreciation of it so the uh website spectrum culture did an interview of kamasi and to kind of retcon my previous discussion so this is the interview i was citing for the disc two a lot as well and we can put the link in the show notes but um it's from this uh that kamasi kind of provided some some light on to the song kind of like we were discussing there's a lot of heroic influences in this album you got henrietta our hero 
Malcolm's theme. And then um, Cherokee could be kind of viewed as a stand-in for that as well, even though it is kind of a jazz standard. And then the mythical guard in disc one as well, yeah. Yeah, so this one's more of like a personal hero, kind of like Henrietta, our hero, where, and Kamasi says in the interview, Malcolm's theme, in quotation marks, um, when I was younger, I got caught up in gangs and was headed down that path. I had two things that brought me out of that. I had a cousin that gave me an Art Blakey mixtape, and I was in this program, and we read Malcolm X's autobiography. I always wanted to give that uh, same thing back. It had such a profound effect on me that maybe I could help someone else. If I could do something that people would look back on the message he was giving during his life with the music. So, I mean, this is an integral part of Kamasi's life. It was something that helped him kind of more or less turn some stuff around and kind of get on the... The right path, I guess, per se, for lack of a better word, um, and to get out of kind of associating with gangs or and stuff like that. So it, from that message, I can gain the meta appreciation for this song. But um, I guess due to kind of the cons we discussed, I agree it's it's not something it's not something I particularly like look forward to on this disc. It's just for me, there's some high high peaks with the instrumentation. But the vocal work and the slowing down of that tend to bring it down for me. Yeah, I would agree. But hey, we're here at the last song of the record, not just disc three, but the entire record, The Message. We made it. (laughs) Yeah, we made it. And wow, talk about a call to action. Like this is a slow burn and like an instigator, like things are starting. Like I I get I get like a a drive from this, uh, which is so nice after... Three songs that, for lack of a better word, are pretty slow, you know? So, to have something, like, that kind of brings you you back up a little bit, like, a kind of, okay, it's, t- it's time to time to do things, time to run, kind of, it's, it, it, it's got that, that heartbeat to it, and it's so nice to see this as the anchor to disc three, and, like, this, along with Rerun and Claire de Lune, are, like, the, the things that... I hold on to and disc three is like, yes, uh, this is good. This is a good song. I love this song. Oh. There is some amazing long solos in this piece. Oh, yeah. Miles Mosley, the fantastic acoustic bass solo. You cannot tell me that's not a good no, bass solo, no, this man. Is, no, yes, I agree. This is That's a prime example of it done well. One, I was just impressed with the duration of some of these solos. You have Kamasi. Oh, my gosh. A three and a half minute solo where he's going at it. Then you have the drum solos that almost for like a minute plus of just a fury that also breaks down into some really nice beats and grooves at around like the 730 mark. It's just this song is a blast. And I agree. It's a it's a well needed kind of pick me up and closer to disc three to close things out. I, I would disagree about the percussion solo by uh, Leon Mobley. I uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's uh, I, to me. It's it. 
the song just kind of falls apart. It's like someone took a load-bearing Jenga block out, and the whole oh, thing oh, right, like, right. It just, I see the whole thing saying. falls down. And to me, then all momentum's lost because now it's just people banging things. And like, I I think percussion can be done very well for solos, but. I just, it, it, I feel like maybe there could have been a little bit more backing to kind of keep the the undercurrent thread of the song going by like the other musicians, and I think maybe Leon could have maybe kept it together a li- just a little bit more, <laughs> so <laughs> so the whole thing didn't come crawl like crumbling down around him. But eh, it's fine, like it, it's good percussion work. It just I I I don't think it it was in service to the song. I think it was more in service to look at my drums. <laughs> I, I get that. I get that. I, I, I could I could see that. Me personally, I I just like the groove of it and I get into it and it's kind of nice to to have a little bit of, a little bit of that break. I mean the song is a, a long enough song where it can um it could definitely handle it and pick up the momentum where it's not like say a, a three minute or where I agree, if this was in a three minute song it would feel kinda odd. But because these songs, like we discussed before, have so much time to breathe and like evolve and explore that I think it, I think they're able to pull it off. At least for me, they are. That's a fair point. Like I, I would agree if there's any time you can get away with having just like a, a bonafide, like and someone's just going to bang on the drums for <laughs> a good <laughs> while. Like it is a long song like this because then like you can have those breaks and let someone just go at it and then build the song back up, which takes time, but you, you got the time. So yeah, fair point. Like, this is the medium to do it. This is an 11-minute uh, song and a three-hour record. This is the time to do this sort of stuff. Yeah, and it is kind of nice in the meta sense of it. If you do listen to this album all the way through, it's kind of it's kind of nice to get a sense of those kind of more candid moments, too, where they kind of just, they do kind of let it break. And it's just kind of like, okay. Yep, let it all hang out. <laughs> We've been going for like, yeah, two plus hours. We can take the moment, yeah, to just kind of groove a little bit and just kind of jam. And I was thinking of you, Michael. It's got the electric hoo-ha at the end yes. just for you. Yes, the electric <laughs> hoo-ha. Wow, 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 Just uh, playing on those dials a little bit. Oh, yes. Oh, Ludo, so soon. April, they're coming back. Yeah, none. <laughs> Electric hoo-ha. Anyway, I don't want to derail us with that, but... Well, I mean, I don't think there's anything left to derail. I think we're done, unless you got more to say on the message. No, I mean, I think you're right. I think we... I think we... I think we did it. <laughs> we did it. We made Three it. Three hours long, the epic. We have done it. Basically making a podcast as long as the three hours itself, but we've done it. So, uh, I do have a few things I want to say as my closing statements before uh, I turn it to you to see if you have any and before we as a final point talk about our own proposed track orderings for the record I I would say as much as I've been harping on volume 3 volume 3 is probably what I would say is the most accessible of all the discs here and here's why there's a lot of lyrics here and to us, a lot of the time, that was kind of to, in our estimation, to the detriment of the song. But a lot of people are more comfortable with with vocals. And they don't really necessarily care about the contents of those vocals, if pop hits are any indication. So <laughs> people like vocals, but they don't really care about vocals. So that is, the general public, that is where they stand. And uh, so that's good. And then also, like, let's be honest, like, a more clear 
melodic structure is easier to to dive into and digest. So, and a lot of these songs here so both have lyrics and are very much very melodic and standard song structured pieces. So, they're not like as ridiculous as Disc 1, which in my opinion is like the most unapproachable of the three. Like if you're just a Joe Schmo diving into Disc 1, you might be turned off by the first track alone just by how chaotic everything seems. But Disc 3, it's more subdued and it is more melodic and easy to follow and it's got the lyrics. So, I I honestly think as much as I've been harping on it, if you don't if you for whatever reason don't have the three hours and you don't like I don't I don't want to listen to it. Um, get tr- try maybe try listening to disc three and and see if that if anything there you like. If you do like something there, odds are that's reflected in a better form on disc one or in disc two. Like Claire de Lune, like if you liked Claire de Lune, there's a lot more to be found like that on disc two. And oh, if you like rerun, uh, rerun home and the message. Um, while those two are different than disc one, you, you, there are going to be things on disc one you might like then. So I, that that could be a good entry point. It's just kind of funny seeing it as the closing disc on the epic. But um, I was trying. I, I was wanted to turn it to you if you had to like just give one disc to someone to listen to. Someone's like, I don't want to listen to this for three hours. Like, do you have like a 30 minute thing or an hour long thing? Uh, then you could be like, okay, well, listen to this disc. It's a really good question. I don't know if I would 100% agree with the... Uh, yes, it's it's approachable. Disc 3 is approachable. But I don't know if it's necessarily representative of what the user's going to... F- or listener's going to find in the other two discs. I agree that little parts and pieces, but from a holistic viewpoint, it's very different. So, if I were to give a disc to someone... Uh, I mean, I, I can't not say disc 2... It has the slower bits, so I think it it is going to be a little bit more approachable in that sense, where it's not going to be like disc one, where it's so much energy that like you need to breathe. The song lengths are very, very long. At least with disc two, the beginning songs are only in the eight-minute mark and nine-minute mark. So I think disc two is probably what I would give to someone to try, because it has those slower songs like Leroy and Lanisha, um, Seven Prayers. But it also has those representative, the epic, high-energy songs, such as Misunderstanding, Henrietta, Our Hero, and The Magnificent Seven. And I don't know, that's probably what I would give, is probably just two to, to someone to explore. I would say my second choice would be disc two for all the reasons you said. Like it, it is a toss up between disc two and three, but I think I'm leaning just slightly more to disc three. But um That's true, because it, it could be very polarizing. Yeah. I would also agree disc two is very um approachable. Um and I, I still think not as much as disc three, but I to your point, disc three is very unusual overall and there's not like this too is a more um clear representation of what you get in the entire package than disc three so in that sense maybe you are right that disc two would be the better starting point if you were to just listen to one disc to judge the epic on uh, and actually that is a good point like it wouldn't only be a good starting point if you just wanted had like an hour to listen to uh disc off the epic for the first time but it also is like the most uh, encapsulated form distilled of what the epic is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll have to 
experiment with that. Share a disc with a couple of people mm. and see how it sticks. We need a scientific study. Yes. We need a control group. Yeah. Let's, let's, get, let's get this going. Yes. All right. So, oh my God, I cannot believe it. I feel like we've been talking about this this record for months. Yes. Well, that's because we have. <laughs> oh, so you mean we didn't record this every week on the day that it's released? Breaking the fourth wall, I'm like, oh. <laughs> No, no, no. So here we go. It is the time for our suggested track orders. For some context, if you are just joining us, um, this was brought up last episode by Michael, um, because I kept bringing up how I preferred some of the things in the vinyl release in terms of song ordering than the digital release, and then there were some cases where I preferred the digital ordering than the vinyl release, and Michael mentioned how um, he had a specific place he wanted Claire de Lune to be instead of where it is, so we all got to thinking, like, let's make our own track orders, which correct the things that we find could be further optimized in terms of flow in this very long album. So, um, Michael, if you want to go first, I'm very interested in what order you decided. Yes, yes. So, here we are. I'm going to go disc by disc, and we're going to kind of step through it. So, disc one. Ready? No change for disc one. I like disc one the way it is in the digital release, and I didn't want it. I didn't want to mess with it. So, my primary switching and like messing is with disc two and disc three and albeit it's not that much as you alluded to and discussed uh in my opinion for disc two i have two swaps here that i would want to potentially experiment with mainly because i'm trying to go with the goal of in my opinion bettering the flow of disc two and upping the energy of disc three um so with disc two like I discussed last time, I wanted to replace Rerun with Claire de Lune and kind of embrace the slower energy before Henrietta, our hero. So that way, we had then Leroy and Lanisha leading into, um, leading into Claire de Lune and then Seven Prayers leading into Henrietta, our hero. So then, in my opinion, I, I kind of like the symmetry of then Disc 2, where you kind of have the high energy misunderstanding and at the beginning and high energy at the end with Henrietta, our hero, and then the final track, which I'll discuss as well. So then you kind of have almost like a parabola of energy, right? So in terms of the final track, like alluded to, that's the second one I'm thinking about replacing. And that's, I want to take Magnificent Seven and replace it by the message. Really? The reason being is I think the, be- I think the beginning of the message is a little bit more easygoing and easier to ease into after the bombastic energy of Henrietta, our hero, where I, f- I feel like you can get almost tired by Henrietta, our hero, because it is just the climax of the album. It's all this energy. It's such a great track. But I still really liked having the energy after Henrietta, our hero, to close it out disc two. So I wanted the message there because I felt like the beginning was easier to dive into um, and kind of ramp back up after uh, Henrietta, our hero. So like discussed, that was my goal for disc two was to kind of keep, I wanted to keep the same energy and kind of the similar tracks. I just wanted to replace that center one to change the flow a little bit. And then the goal was for disc three was I wanted to bring some more energy into kind of like we alluded to. It's kind of a lackluster disc in my opinion, holistically. So my proposal was to start with rerun and 
Granted, I will admit for my own ordering, I don't think Cherokee sounds good after rerun, but then again, I don't think Cherokee sounds good <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> anywhere you place it. So I'm willing to embrace the, the flaw there um, that rerun may not lead into Cherokee as well, but I'm proposing that it starts with rerun into Cherokee and then rerun home. And the thought being that I kind of liked having rerun and rerun home closer because the more I thought about it, it's such a big album that it's very unlikely that someone's going to sit down and listen to it as a whole. And if they do, let's be honest, their attention span's not going to hold for the same level of active listening throughout the whole thing. So I wanted Rerun and Rerun Home to be closer together so, so the listener, if they so chose to listen to just one disc, could then appreciate the reprise that rerun home is of rerun and they kind of then get the the other side of the coin and i think the slow beginning of rerun home flows nicely after cherokee and i think the whimper finish leads into malcolm's theme well it's less of a less abrupt of a change in contrast of energy and kind of the flow of this so then we lead into malcolm's theme which retains its place and then i wanted to close scenes out with the magnificent seven and I still wanted to close things out with energy. I think the message in Magnificent Seven have a similar level of like energy to them. But I also think that Magnificent Seven still achieves a very similar goal. It builds nicely off Malcolm's theme, where you kind of have a, that base at the beginning that just kind of brings us in slowly. And you kind of get the sense from the ambiance at the beginning that like, okay, we're headed to something big here. Um, and I also love the end. Like we, we talked about, the braps braps at the end. It still maintained the high energy finish to the album that the message had. So I guess if I were trying to sum up my changes to ordering here, it's nothing like I'm trying to not like change the foundation of the house too much. I'm just trying to achieve kind of holistically the things that kind of jumped out to me and just do a little little swaps here and there to kind of satisfy what i was would would have liked to see i guess hmm okay interesting i was not expecting to see the magnificent seven move right off the bat uh we're definitely different on disc one uh spoilers i just wholesale took the vinyl release order i find that superior um just wholesale <laughs> drag and dropped that is disc one so five tracks instead of six now disc two i'm not gonna lie I, I still had a little bit of trouble with. I feel like I still have one song too many. Now, granted, my criteria here isn't something that can be uh, pressed onto a vinyl lacquer. Uh, it's not something that's practical. It's just more a matter uh, and like, oh, each disc can only have an equal amount of songs. Like, that wasn't my criteria. It was more just what flows good in terms of like melodic, tonal rhythm throughout the entire record and i think the vinyl releases disc one is superior so wholesale take that uh disc two yeah now we're going back to the digital it has to start with misunderstanding what the hell are you doing <laughs> Disc two starts with misunderstanding yep. period um this is the one change i'm not too thrilled about i don't know where to put rhythm changes and honestly i even forgot to include it in my ordering i looked at it just now i'm like the hell is the rhythm changes <laughs> so i 
I, I kind of hastily put it after Misunderstanding, and I'm not happy about that, because that also means there's seven tracks now in disc two. I might have to revisit that. The show notes will reflect my now correct order once I go back and I find a proper place for rhythm changes. So I'm going to kind of gloss over the rhythm changes. For now, I just have it after Misunderstanding. Psst, it's at the end of disc one. Well, I, I know, but I don't... I don't want it at the end of this one. It doesn't belong there. Uh, so, it's a misunderstanding for now. I'll say misunderstanding rhythm changes. And uh, Leroy and the Nisha, so that's going to remain on just two. And yeah, no, I think this is actually following exactly what you did. Claire de Lune's next, for sure. Um, and I would agree for the same reasons that you did it. Uh, it's a nice parabola of energy, for sure, where you start with the peak and then you code and go down into more groovy, slow stuff. Not even groovy, just more melodic, smooth stuff. And then bring back up the energy at the end. So you got a nice parabola effect going in the middle of just two. And, uh, yeah, Claire de Lune and then going into Seven Prayers. And something you didn't mention is that Claire de Lune ends with the piano. Uh, Seven Prayers begins with the piano. They both tie so beautifully to each other. They, they belong next to each other. I cannot believe they're not next to each other on the official releases track ordering. That just boggles my mind. They seem like they're sister songs. They need to be together. Um, yeah, then Seven Prayers is going to lead into Henrietta, our hero. No change there again. Um, and this is where we start to disagree. Definitely Magnificent Seven is still after Henrietta, our hero. I am perfectly happy with Magnificent Seven after Henrietta, our hero. I have no problems with that. Um, so I, I, I see your reasoning. I appreciate it. And I will ignore it. <laughs> I, I see the points you said. But to me, I'm, I'm happy with Magnificent Seven where it is. Um, uh, leading into Disc 3, uh, we differ pretty heavily here as well. Uh, I have Rerun starting Disc 3. Not Rerun Home, Rerun. Um, and then second song is Cherokee, followed by Malcolm's Theme. And then the fourth song on Disc 3 is Rerun Home. So it kind of feeds back into itself, like kind of a mini repetition going on in Disc 3. And then the anchor remains the message. So the message is kind of like the afterword in a book, where it's like the fine, it's not a chapter, but it's the last part of the book, um, where Rerun and Rerun Home are wrapping up, uh, kind of bookend the disc three. This is kind of like the send off the message at the end of that. So that's kind of my thinking there. Um, I'm very unhappy about where I put rhythm changes now, because I, I don't know how I dropped that during my track ordering, but rest assured, I will go through and find a proper place for it in the uh, uh, track ordering in our show notes. But um, So there's my, my ordering. Any any thoughts or concerns? Yeah, so it seems like we agree that Rerun and Rerun Homes should be on the same disc. Yeah, I would agree. You you bring up a good point. Claire DeLune's piano complements Seven Prayers very well in terms of the ending feeding into the beginning. So good. I should listen to the vinyl ordering for disc one. I'm telling you, man, it's superior. It's so much better. <laughs> it could be that I just, I don't know. That's kind of why I left it alone is because I just haven't heard it before. I see your reasoning on why you want the message still to stand. I, and that's something that I, I agree. I'm, I'm not too happy with having a change to the Magnificent Seven, but I think it's worth it in terms of how it will elevate um, disc three, mm. but I I do think the message still fits well after Henrietta our hero because Henrietta our hero is such a powerhouse that you're almost able to 
have kind of the afterword after that too. I will say you you might be convincing me to cheat a little bit and maybe move. No, 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 no. Misunderstanding or rhythm changes is going to be the one that moves. Rhythm changes is probably moving on to disc three. I just need to find a place for it, which honestly isn't that unusual for disc three. Now that I'm looking at it, rhythm changes is a very melodic and vocal focused piece. And that's par for the course for disc three, uh, OG disc three. It fit comfortably right next to Cherokee and Malcolm's theme. Now I think I'm convincing myself. I'll find a place for it in disc three, but yeah, no, I, I, I can definitely understand your reasoning for moving the Magnificent Seven though. And, um, I would suggest giving the vinyl order for disc one a try. Uh, in fact, just give my own ordering a try. I'll give yours a try as well. We'll report back on our findings. Yes. No, I think that'd be, I agree. That'd be interesting to, uh, to listen through. I, I'm especially interested in disc one with your ordering and what you're suggesting. I mean, it's not my ordering. It's the vinyl ordering, but well, yes, sure, yeah. my ordering, of course. <laughs> I'll take full credit. All right. Well, we have done it. We have dissected this thing to high hell. I think we're done. (laughs) (laughs) We did it. And with that, we'll send the epic off into the backlog (laughs) where where we can finally move on to something else that's hopefully a little bit more digestible and doesn't need to be broken up into uh, a Hollywood-style three-piece epic. But... Yeah, with that, I, I think it's finally time to wrap up. Michael, thanks so much for doing this with me. This has been an absolute treat, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to the next, hopefully, lighter album. Mm-hmm. It's been epic. All right, and uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. All the show notes that we mentioned, our track orders, everything will be in the show notes if you don't know where those are or where to find them. Uh, they're usually in your podcast player of choice. Most podcast players support them. You'll have to look up the help articles for the podcast player of your choice if you don't know where to find them. Or alternatively, it's so much easier. You can just go on to badmusichurts.com. That's hurts like it hurts so good or hurts like the car company. Either <laughs> one works. And, <laughs> and you'll find a picture of our dopey heads uh, over uh, the backdrop of the Epic's album art. Click on that and you'll see all the show notes, all the links to the interview and our song uh, orders and everything. So uh, thanks for listening in and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. And that's it. We did it. We did it. Holy moly. I'm okay. Now, now I can say it because I was worried when we started. I genuinely thought this would kill the podcast <laughs> trying the epic. Like, we would try recording episode one, we'd finish it, and we would just be so burnt out and disgusted and not continue. <laughs> Like, because, like, I was worried we wouldn't have enough to say. This is such a strange thing for us to cover. We had never mm-hmm. covered something as sparse lyrically as as this 
album. And I, I thought that coupled with it having to be three discrete parts, I, I thought there was a, a non-trivial chance we just would never finish. Yes. And I'm glad we did. I think yeah, we're we better did. because of it. <laughs> <laughs> From the fires, we were molded by it. Yes. No, I, I I didn't. That's interesting that you had that thought. I, I got to admit, when we suggested this, I was also like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. Like, <laughs> it's it's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, it was... It was very good. I'm glad we did it. It was honestly a little, a lot of fun. I got it, it. Got got me thinking more critically about the instruments and instrumentation and everything like that, and a little yeah, bit more <laughs> on high level flow. And yeah, just it was interesting. It was it was a nice challenge. It was a nice mm-hmm. challenge. Yeah, and I think this has served as a very good test bed for us to get consistent practice getting more comfortable doing this without amy because mm-hmm. it has been very strange to do this without amy but i think we're both more comfortable just kind of doing this solo <laughs> yeah now, like, exactly at least more comfortable than when we started not that we were uncomfortable doing it but it certainly was a change from mm-hmm. you know doing it with you know expecting this there to be three of us total you know yeah so. exactly no i think i think we showed that we can still make it work and mm-hmm. um yeah no i think it it's it's been a lot of fun i'm glad we decided to tackle it mm-hmm. oh my god yeah and actually uh not real-time follow-up amy did listen to benji apparently yes and, uh, the only follow-up we got was this was morbid <laughs> <laughs> or what was what was amy's wording exactly I it think was it's, very yeah, she just said that's morbid <laughs> yeah it's oh, morbid. let's see here <laughs> uh i'm i'm gonna take that as maybe she didn't like oh she just said <laughs> um she said here we go 2 46 p.m february the 21st finally listening to benji three exclamation points 4 20 february 21st how morbid and that's it (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect oh my god all right so the the word is in (laughs) that is amy's thoughts on on benji you know what i'm actually really liking this maybe amy can listen to the records we choose on her own time provide her her a commentary whenever she has a moment and we'll in the post show the after show do like a little uh, segment share with the listeners amy's (laughs) thoughts i like it i like it a lot (laughs) Uh, It'd be like a tweet length of her <laughs> opinions on the thing. Yes. Which I feel like if we send her that, she's going to be like, I ain't got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> I have two she's kids. She's got two kids, two very little kids. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, people. Is it really warm by you guys? Here? No. No? <laughs> it's warm in our apartment because we have the heat cranked up, but it's, it's not warm yet. Yeah, it's, it was like 54 today. It was really nice. Uh, we did have a couple days where it was warmer, but those were the odd ones out. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. <coughs> I'm fine. <coughs> uh, okay. Bill's character. 